0: This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.
1: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, for decades, indeed for a very, very long time, going back to the Second World War, Sweden has been a very independent-minded country in the Second World War. They were neutral, as we were, but for decades afterwards, they were A beacon of social democracy and liberalism, free thinking and left of centre, centre, left of centre in many of their attitudes and their politics. But that has changed very dramatically in recent times. And we're joined now by one of Ireland's best exports. uh, Philip O'Connor is an Irish journalist who's been in Sweden for over 20 years and is one of the best reporters on all matters, including sport, but also politics. And listeners to the stand will be familiar with Philip from the COVID crisis, where, again, quite typically, Sweden took a very independent line uh, and a very controversial line. Uh, Philip, thank you very much for joining us. The news from Sweden in recent months has been rather different. It's no longer a bastion, of social democracy, and in the past week, indeed, a crisis has erupted, which involves gangs, fighting, and remarkably, Ulf Christensen, the centre-right prime minister now, is thinking of calling in the Swedish army to help the police uh, to control the violence that's broken out in uh, Sweden. So thanks very much for joining us. Tell us about this change which began with the election of this centre-right government and the causes behind it.
1: This has been a long time coming, Eamon. As you mentioned quite rightly, after the Second World War, Sweden became this beacon of social democracy. Because they weren't involved in the war, everything to do with industry was still intact. Nothing was bombed. The factories still existed. And most importantly, the forests were still huge and profitable. So Sweden was essentially able to couple that with uh, an ability to be creative and innovative in technology. And then what they would do is, you know, they would help Europe to rebuild. So they managed to get all of those things, you know, to really be in the drive seat at a perfect time coming out of the Second World War. And that lasted for decades until Olaf Palme's time in power, when he came into politics in the late 1960s, was prime minister in the late 1970s and was eventually murdered in the early 1980s. That was when things started to get a little bit shaky. Now, when they really sort of started, like the slide into what we see today would have started in, in, in the middle of the 1990s. Sweden had a financial crisis, not unlike the one that Ireland experienced in 2008. And that That opened the door for an awful lot of changes. If you remember in Ireland in 2008, when we had the Troika, when they came in, the IMF, uh, and uh, you had these guys coming in and saying, okay, as part of our bailout, as part of how we're going to help you out, you have to liberalise your markets. And a similar thing happened to Sweden in the mid-1990s, and that opened up then for a centre-right that previously had been okay. It was a good counterbalance, if you like, to the social democracy of Palme and the rest of the Social Democrat Party. But that has moved on exponentially, and Sweden has gone from being what uh, Palmer used to call the people's home to one of the most neoliberal projects out there in terms of how things are run. So, whereas uh, in the past you would have had a social welfare network, uh, you know, that sort of looked after you from the cradle to do to the grave, it was a safety net through which nobody would fall. But nowadays schools can be run for for profit. There's very few sort of you know health centres anymore that aren't privately owned. So all of this has taken over, and that provided, if you like, the, the, the ground uh, in which this sort of Our right thing has been able to grow, so it's a very big and very broad and very complex thing. But it's been going on since the beginning of the 1990s or so, and the culmination really was in last September's election, when a very, very weak, very, very poor centre-right coalition of the Christian Democrats, the Liberals and Ulf Christensen's moderate party got together, and with the support of the far-right Sweden Democrats, they managed to snatch power by a very, very thin margin. But to do so, they have to implement the Sweden Democrats' policies, and that's what has us where we are today, where Prime Minister Christensen said during the week that he was thinking of putting soldiers on the streets to deal with gang violence here in Sweden.
0: Yes, and he addressed the nation on television last Thursday night, and he... he laid out a position that is very, very tough. It does appear, as in elsewhere across Europe, that immigration is a very significant factor, as well as the financial issues you talked about, the the right-wing free market stuff.
1: Well, I think we have to be careful how we frame these things just for the sake of honesty, Amen, right? So, immigration yeah. in Sweden is one thing, and I- integration is another, okay? Yeah. So, if we go back to that post-war period when Sweden was the engine of Europe's economy, rebuilding Europe, they were crying out for what they call "yes, albieter. It's almost the same word in German, and it means guest workers. Yes. And those original workers came from places like Greece and from southern Italy and from the, the Balkans, because these were places where people needed to move abroad, much like we did in Ireland for generations to find good paying work, right? Now, that was the immigration aspect of it. You started to bring people in. And Sweden has been a beacon, you know, people from Pinochet's Chile, from Somalia, from Afverki's Eritrea, they have found a safe home here. There's hundreds of thousands of Kurds living in this country, over 100,000 Kurdish people, because of course, they don't have a country of their own. And Sweden has been extremely generous on that front. So, in terms of immigration, Sweden has been, you know, a poster child, if you like. But in terms of integration, it has been quite the failure, because you, you, integration is a two-way street, Eamon, okay? If you're going to bring yes. people into the country, you can't just say, okay, we want you to work in our factory and you want, we want you to sit in this apartment on the outside of town. We don't want you to get involved in politics. We don't want you to get involved in media. We don't want you to get involved in the Lions Club or whatever other organizations they are. You are solely here for what we can get out of you. Yeah. That doesn't work. Again, as we know from the Irish immigrant experience, that we, when we try to integrate, of course we bring our music and our literature and our gaelic games and you know the support for celtic football club or whatever it might be with us but we also have gotten into these organizations and become part of these organizations in places like new york and chicago and in later years now we've seen it a lot in australia and new zealand where irish organizations are popping up but very much integrated with the society and in sweden that hasn't really worked the same way
0: yes and uh, actually in france for the 2024 Olympics, which is next year, which French are hosting, the French government has insisted that French athletes will not be allowed to wear the hijab or any, this is a a Muslim headscarf, they say these games will have to be, sport will have to be secular. Mm -hmm. And the French insist on that. It doesn't mean that people are prohibited from doing certain things, wearing certain forms of clothing, particularly Muslim people, In ordinary day life, but there is uh, in schools, for example, and now in sport, it's become an issue there. And Mm. as you say, it's not the immigration per se, but the failure to integrate and Mm. to accept the culture Mm. of the host country.
1: I was talking to a man recently, a man called Uz Niyan. Uz is a fantastic comedian. He's an actor. He's a writer. uh, He's performed plays and everything. Uh, He fled uh, the the Kurdish part of Turkey at the age of eight. His father had been taken, tortured and beaten and let out of prison. And basically, after he'd been let out of prison a few weeks later, uh, somebody tipped him off that the police were going to come and get him again. Okay. So his father left the country in the dead of night. He didn't see his father for several years. At the age of eight, he had to cross the border out of Turkey. And he came eventually to sweden so at that stage it was possible to find a safe route to europe this is no longer possible Uh, they could go to the embassy in Damascus in Syria and his family were flown to Sweden where they were reunited with his father. And I remember he said to me a few years ago, Eamon, he said, I didn't come to Sweden to become Swedish. I came here to continue being Kurdish. Now, there's no prouder Swedish citizen than us, but you cannot remove his Kurdish heritage from him. And this is the difficulty or the, the challenge that we face in terms of integration. No more than I myself want to abandon my Irish roots, my Irish... Irish heritage and culture in living here for the last 24 years. I want to be able to do both. And this is what it comes down to, is what sacrifices must be made by me as an immigrant in a foreign country and how far does that country have to come to meet me. As you mentioned, the hijab in particular, which is a scarf usually worn by women as a, as a form of modesty, where they cover their hair, that's been one of the sort of flashpoints, especially in France, where they talk about, uh, you know, liberté, égalité, fraternité, that, you know, that this secular society where the church doesn't tell the state what to do. It's a sort of a wedge issue because if you start to talk about things like that and essentially what they're saying is that the hijab is unfrench, and similar things happen in Sweden if a child goes to school, a Muslim child goes to school and if they, they get a great school lunch here every day or at least they used to, right? If that's pork Should an alternative be provided? These are all wedge issues that are discussed in terms of integration and that kind of thing. And it's always put upon the person moving to the country to make uh, the compromise. It seems to be very seldom the country itself or the culture uh, of the country itself that's not forced, but that needs convincing to to sort of integrate with the person moving there as well. So it's a very, very complex subject.
0: Yes, and it raises the whole question of the feasibility of multiculturalism, doesn't it?
1: It certainly highlights the difficulties of it, because uh, like yeah. if we flip this on its head, um, I, I was at the... Well, walk- for, for yeah.
0: example, just sorry to interrupt you, Philip, uh, just to, for an example, if the visitor or the person seeking to become Swedish or French, if they refuse to accept the culture of the country they have emigrated to, then it does raise issues, and it is raising issues that are actually of immense importance and difficulty. Mm. And this appears to be, as you're uh, about to tell us, I'm sure, central, and as you have told us, to this problem. Some things are just not compatible, and it's the school dinners or school lunches, as you point out is a classic example, is it not?
1: Hmm. I I think it definitely is, because you will find those arguments everywhere. Uh, For instance, it was less so in sport and more so with people driving buses and public transport in this country and indeed working in the school system. So if you worked uh, for the local commune, the local council here, Uh, certain councils would have said, okay, we're not going to allow hijabs, we're not going to allow any religious symbolism, which would mean that you couldn't wear a cross or a crucifix around your neck or that kind of thing. And this opens up you know, these these small, small battlegrounds for how these things are discussed and how these things are done. But often what you're, you know, there's a tendency to paint oneself into a corner when you do that. Because, for instance, is it just Muslim symbols that are wrong, or is it also Christian symbols? Is it all religious symbols? In France, there's one interpretation made of that. In Sweden, there's a different interpretation notation made. Yes. Uh, usually at the end of the school year here in Sweden, uh, you would have what's called school of sleuthing. So at the end of the, the school year, it used to be in a church and certain hymns would be sung and kids of all persuasions and none went to these things. But then all of a sudden it was, oh, you know, we have to do these things in the church. Some people may not feel comfortable there. I'm not a religious person myself, even though I grew up in the Catholic church like most Irish people, but it's not integral to me to any part of any ceremony, be it a funeral or a wedding or anything else. But as I was just about to mention there, when I was in Doha for the World Cup last December, um, we talked about this thing about what's acceptable in different cultures and, you know, when in Rome do as the Romans do. And I was at a press conference on a Monday afternoon at two o'clock with the Danish Football Association. And as you'll well remember there, there was this talk about the One Love Armband and that Harry Kane had been threatened with a booking and this kind of thing because this is their country. This is their culture and they don't appreciate people uh, lifting LGBTQ issues, right? That's that's just what it is. And as I sat there listening to, to Jens Muller, who was the president of the Danish Football Association, the call to prayer rang out from the local mosque. And that, to me, was the epitome of the situation that we have, not just where I live here in Stockholm and Sweden, but also in places like that. And what it behoves us all to do, because you mentioned multiculturalism has become such a loaded term now. The world has always been multicultural. Going back to Christopher Columbus and to Magellan and to the, the Brendan voyage, people have always travelled far and wide, you know, from one parish to another, from one county to another, from one country to another, to explore. Explore and to trade and to discover. So, this has always existed with us. There have always been people in our midst. I'm sure there's people of my generation who would say that when we grew up in Dublin, there was really only two black men in Dublin and they were yeah. filled in at Paul McGrath. And now yeah. we have a much more diverse nation than what we had back then. But what we fail to, to discuss is compromise. And we're always talking about what we expect other people to do and never what we are prepared to do. And that's, you know, there's no better evidence of that than in the north of Ireland and the discussion around maybe a 32-country republic in the future. It's always about what the other side has to do and not what we have to do. So in the Swedish context... Uh, what was previously the social contract here was that you you were born, you went to school, you got a trade or a job and you worked and you paid relatively high taxes, but you would always be looked after. Yes. And in terms then of the the yes the guest workers that came to Sweden, and this was actually lifted recently by a government minister as well, uh, the idea that, you know, somehow that I would come to this country and I would pay the same taxes as a Swedish person born and raised here. But because of the fact that I'm still not a citizen after 24 years, that I wouldn't be entitled to things like the generous paternity leave and sick leave and um, uh, unemployment benefits that might be on offer to others. And this has become the thing of this centre right. government now. It's this dividing people into us and them, to the deserving and the non-deserving. And I actually, uh, the, the minister in question uh, actually blocked me on Twitter because I've, I asked herself, why? I've done, you know, I've trained football teams here, I've taught self-defence here, I've been out as part of the local neighbourhood watch schemes, wandering around in the middle of the night, talking to young people to try to keep them on the right side, to show them that adults are willing to listen to them. But now all of a sudden she wants to reduce my old age pension if I eventually get one or to reduce those rights I have solely because I'm not a citizen. Now, she didn't mean me. She didn't mean a white European middle-aged man when she was saying these things. She meant brown people who've come here from sub-Saharan Africa. She meant people coming here from Asia and Afghanistan. That's who they're talking about.
0: Yes, and I want to come back um, in a moment just to say in passing that Sweden because of uh, Vladimir Putin's aggression in Ukraine, Sweden, and Finland, our traditional neutral countries, both have uh, applied to join NATO. Mm. And the real question, I suppose, is how this will change attitudes and will drive people who, if you like, treasure their culture uh, their religion in a certain way, and if there are too many dissenting voices, if immigration swells, and if more people are taken than can be accommodated, is that what's happened? I have the impression that's what what's happened in Sweden,
1: but uh, it's only an impression. Well, it's very much framed in that way, Eamon, and that's the difficulty of the whole thing, right? Because when you when you get is down, is it true? Like, again, it's in some way true, in some ways not, right? There are obviously problems with gangs here. There are obviously problems with very, very young people getting involved in gangs here. Most of the time, or much of the time, they come from immigrant backgrounds, but not all of the time right and the, the the amazing thing here is I often, like I always try to link what happened in this country politically with what happened economically right so I mentioned earlier on there that the health service started to be sold out you know the, the legislation was put in place in the 90s and now it's really accelerating where every local health centre is basically some private provider doing it right and only in recent days when Ulf Christensen was talking about putting the, the army on the streets here to control this gang crime it turns out that these gangs themselves are investing in dentist practices and local private health centres and the primary care centres and this kind of thing. So it just goes to show the strong links between the economics and the politics between the two. But if you look, if you zoom out and you look at immigration in general, right, there are good people and bad people coming from every country in the world, as there are in Dublin and Cork and Belfast and in New York and San Francisco. There are good Irish people and good and bad Irish people. There are people who find themselves in situations that they cannot control. There are people who find themselves in situations of addiction, in situations of domestic violence. None of this is unique to any particular uh, religion or race yeah. or citizenship. And what the f- the failure really is, if we allow these things to be framed in that way, we miss the success stories. Some of the most successful people in this country come from immigrant backgrounds, and they might have been the Finnish war children who came here in 1941 to 1943. They might be the people who've come from Pinochet's Chile. They might be people like Nayan, who I mentioned earlier on, there, uh, who came here to escape what was happening in Turkey. And ironically. Sweden's NATO application. Uh, I the first thing I said when Sweden applied to join NATO was that we knew that Erdogan was going to have to approve this, and that he was going to extract a very high political price from Sweden to do that, and that has happened. And I said at the time that he would throw uh, that Sweden would throw the Kurds under the bus, and that yes. means that there's going to be a hundred, if not a thousand, if not a hundred thousand more people like us who came to this country. So I think it's very difficult though as well, Eamon, because these are such emotive things, right? Yeah, and if, it's it's worth
0: pointing out that um traditionally the relationship between the kurds and turkey is rot- rotten and 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 fiercely the, the kurds feel they have been persecuted by the turks um, so that's another factor in this equation, isn't
1: it? It is indeed. It's it's basically a byproduct of colonialism. So when the, yes. the British left that part of the world, the Kurds numbered around about 60, or to this day I think it's about 64 million people, right? But their land was basically split up between Iran, Iraq, Syria and Turkey, and they've never had a country of their own. If you talk yes. to a Kurdish person, within five minutes they'll use the expression, the only friend the Kurd has is the mountains, because yes. that's literally the only place they felt safe, because it was militarily impossible to attack. So it is one of those things, and the these are situations that, you know, one way or the other, that we in the, in the wealthy West have created these situations. We've created this, these situations in Africa. A very obvious one is what happened post 9-11 in Afghanistan where the country was brought to its knees and basically destroyed uh, in every way possible. Hence the number of people who have come here fr- uh, to, to Europe from Afghanistan. Yeah. A similar situation with Turkey, where geopolit- or, sorry not Turkey with Syria where geopolitics has played a huge role in the hundreds of thousands of people who left Syria, most of whom ended up in Lebanon, a neighbouring country, there, but many of whom made their way to to, uh, to Europe as well. But that point, Aymond, that um. And the people who do come to these countries and who make a success of themselves, if we allow the political discourse to be about us and them, and if you're seen as being a burden on the state, there is obviously it obviously takes time when people move from one country to another, especially people who may have experienced trauma on the way, the way that yes. family would have done. It takes time for them to become contributing members to, to society, but we paint them as being people who are just going to sit at home and they're going to get unemployment benefit or some sort of a grant from the government to sit there. They're going to get help ahead of our own. We've heard all of these arguments before but that is not the reality. That, like The reality is that most people are integrated here and it was fascinating to see in the area where I live because a local football club in 2016, in October 2016, we opened the doors of basically the hall that's there. And it would be relatively small compared to the average JAA hall in any parish in Ireland but we opened that up and put mattresses on the floor for people mostly coming from Afghanistan and Syria, some coming from Iraq. Many of those lads still live here. right? Young fellows who would have been 15, 16, 16, 16, 17 at that stage. They're now 21, 22, 23. I'm thinking of one in particular who just had his first child recently and he's a qualified mechanic, and he's a coach at the football club, right? So there are some success stories like that all over the country. But again, there are also stories like uh, a Kurdish man who controls an awful lot of the drug trade around where I live, who is now living back in Turkey at the moment. They call him the Kurdish fox, this fella, um, something that you might see in an Irish tabloid newspaper. But he has been an absolute disaster for the area that I live in, and he's right. one of the people behind the wave of violence that's happening here at the moment. So it's one of those things that you have to take the bad, and the good, I'm afraid. Let me ask you
0: a final question, uh, Philip, about the media. Yeah. In my view, the success of immigration to Ireland is due in part to the fact that we ourselves had to emigrate to the United States, to the UK, and we had it tough when we did. There were no dogs, no blacks, no Irish signs on lodging houses in England at a certain time in the 50s and early 60s, indeed, when I was living there myself. And in the United States, the Irish were down there with the Italians as despised, as despised immigrants. However, they've overcome that. But the one thing we've never done here is A, because of those experiences ourselves of having to leave our native land and try somewhere else. We don't have in this country a right-wing newspaper, we don't have a version of the Daily Telegraph or the Daily Mail in England, for example, or Sony, indeed. We don't have a right-wing political party in the sense that you might have even in Sweden. What we have here is moderate centre-ground politics and moderate centre-ground responsible journalism. The idea, for example, that we'd have a, a Nigel Farage with a nightly television show, as they do in Britain on GB News, would be laughable. And so, when people attempted to uh, successfully intimidate our uh, parliamentarians a couple of weeks ago with a demonstration, only 200 turned up. And they were, you know, largely blackguards, but they got no support in any media, anywhere. Uh, the only support they got was online. And therefore, although they did cause distress, they did manage to effectively lock the workers in Dolarin, including the DDs and the staff, into Dolarin for two hours and two and a half hours. There is no take-up and there is no media propagation of their asks, their creeds, their demands. And I think that is a huge factor In our successful, so far, immigration policy, although we are reaching the limit in terms of housing and health and the things you should properly have for all people living in your country, including your own people.
1: I think there's a lot to unpack there, Eamon. And one thing is about the media in particular. I suppose the best way to describe it is that when I moved to Sweden in 1999, the Sweden Democrats, who are now the second largest party in the country, right, around about 17 or 18% of the votes, that's almost one in five votes gets cast for the Sweden Democrats. They were basically a bunch of lads uh, in with skinheads with bomber jackets, right? They were not taken seriously by anybody. They would have been seen to use your word, they would have been seen as blackguards, right? Yeah. 20, a little more than Twenty years later, sorry, about ten years later, eleven years later, in 2010, the party got into the parliament for the first time. You have to achieve a national vote of over four percent to get into parliament, and they got their first few MPs right. And since then, it has been exponential. They're now the second largest party in yes. the country. So I would, I would be Cassandra there, and I would, like, you know, raise a finger to say, just because it hasn't happened in Ireland, do, doesn't mean that it cannot happen in Ireland. The way the media treats things, I would, I would sort of disagree with you there because I think there's two aspects to it. One is that there are certain commentators who are happy enough to lift the discussions and the talking points and indeed there are certain politicians who are happy enough uh, to lift the discussion points uh, that these people outside the door would raise and, and there's an American academic... Not in Ireland I mean they, I, I they, they were
0: universally condemned here oh, uh, but-
1: and but then, but then you had the, the the issue around horseshoe theory, where they were saying the far right is as bad as the far left. There was no far left outside the doll on that day, man. So the idea that these two we things don't, are, we don't have a far left. But that's what I'm saying. But but this is always <laughs> I'm, up. I'm about as far left as yet. Exactly, I have been for a long time. No, but it was uh, it was very funny to see that you know uh, as soon as this happened, somebody was saying, oh, well, the like Paul Murphy and the Jobstown water charges protest was brought up as being. I went to similar. court to support them, and, I, 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 and, and it is to your immense credit that you did. But to, to but to liken Paul and and the water protesters and yourself uh, involved there uh, to these guys who are outside the doll with, with a, a mock gallows, these aren't the same thing, and we can't. No, treat them exactly. This but, but
0: what I what I, what I what I argue is that the, the left has a hard time. Paul Murphy has a hard time getting elected, uh, as do some of the other left mm-hmm. independents, because we don't. Not only do we not have a right wing zealot media, we don't have a left wing zealot media. Unless you exclude the Irish Times, which is hard yeah, I wouldn't include the Irish oh, Times. Would it's the centre ground, yeah, but that is they are regarded as the left, Um and know. they have they are it's a very responsible and moderate newspaper. Um I, I don't see anything left about it. But the point is, we don't have the extremes of media in this country. That and I, what I my question to you is: mm. Do you
1: have them in Sweden? I, I think you have a very similar situation maybe 15 or 20 years ago to what is happening in Ireland now, right? So the big newspaper that used to arrive in it was delivered to our house every morning, hail, rain or snow, is called New Nyheter, translates as the daily news. And yeah. uh, political parties in this country will say that, you know, our, our take on things is centre-right. Our take on things is liberal. It is independent social democrat, for instance. So they nail their colours to the mast on the editorial pages every time they print something. And Doggins Hether would have said that it was an independent liberal party right or sorry an independent liberal newspaper and i've seen the shift in what they wrote from being independent and being liberal to adopting some of these talking points that are you know yes. put out there by the far right and what happens is that they're given a veneer of respectability by being yes. discussed seriously Precisely. There was a recent piece, uh, you mentioned housing there, which is a fascinating one, because immigration has very little effect on housing in Ireland. The reason the housing policy in Ireland is so bad is because it's run; it's basically run as a free market. There's no state-owned housing anymore. There's no council housing, the like of which you you can see the estates all over Dublin and indeed all over the big city. They just don't exist anymore. It's left to the market to fix it, right? So, the idea that, and just to pick up that one thing, because I know a prominent economist wrote a piece on that reasonably recently, and said, okay, this is one of those contexts in which the discuss it. If you're going to do that, you have to be honest about it and you have to say that this is a failure of government. It's not a failure of immigration or integration. It's a failure of government to deal. This is not new, Eamon. This is a problem that we've had for donkey's years since we started selling off what we used to call corporation houses back in the day. I I would like to go back to that point of uh, there's a, a, an American a- academic, her name is Whitney Phillips, and she wrote a brilliant paper called The Oxygen of Amplification, and it's very interesting from a media perspective about these far-right talking points, because she concluded, after all the interviews and the research that she did, that just by showing up to a protest like the one that was held outside the doll, we we're actually doing their work for them. We're doing yeah. the work of the far-right for them, because it lifts these things to an audience that maybe would not have heard nor paid attention to them, right? And they, they thrive on fear. They don't thrive on facts. They thrive on anger and fear. And when you go down that rabbit hole, it's actually very empowering. If you're a man of 40 years of age or a woman of 40 years of age, and you're still living in your childhood bedroom because you can't afford a house, and all of a sudden you hear that that's not the fault of the government or your local council. That's the fault of somebody coming in from Ukraine or Syria or Afghanistan. It's very, very easy to join the dots. And once you've done that on that particular subject, then the next thing is hospital waiting lists. And
0: health and all that. But exactly. we are we are resisting that so successfully. But uh, as you say, you know, don't sort of start cheering too soon. And clearly, in Sweden, uh, this would would have to be a final question just on the grounds of time, Philip, yeah. because uh, as you say, Sweden is in many ways the cautionary tale for every uh, country in general. Uh, when you look right across Europe and in Slovakia at the weekend. A fan of Vladimir Putin's was first past uh, the post mm. and may well become the next uh, prime minister of Slovakia who are a member of the European Union. It's not, it's going to get possibly worse before it gets better, if it ever does get better, because we have, this is my question.
1: Has Sweden passed the tipping point? Um, I would say yes and no. Again, it's very hard to give a straight answer, but I'll do it as quickly as I can. Amen. I think Sweden has reached a point now where it's questioning what it has become and in particular the situation around schools and the privatisation of schools and hundreds of millions of euros being made in profit, that's something that people are beginning to question. The solution to this is neither on the right nor the far right. It's actually up to the left. Most of the social democratic parties in Europe and in particularly in the Nordic region have moved as far right as, you know, it's unbelievable the things that they are saying now that they never would have thought of saying 20 years ago. Very similar to that, it was actually the former social democrat prime minister Magdalena Andersson who first brought up the idea of bringing the army me onto the streets. And if the left wants to counteract that properly, they have to abandon that position and move back towards the idea of this social safety net through which nobody can fall. And that includes people coming, seeking a better life, seeking international protection, seeking a future for themselves and their families because that was what made these parties so powerful in the post-war period. And it's probably about the only thing that can save these countries from the right and the far right in the future.
0: Okay, Philip O'Connor in Stockholm. We're very grateful as always to you for joining us Thank you very much indeed. We're well, grateful to Philip, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.